Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone, and good afternoon, Dr. Green. Welcome to the Asian Initiative Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of Asian Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. The objective of, the, of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Dr. Michael Green, who will be presenting a lecture on an assessment of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Dr. Michael Green is Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Director for Asian Studies at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Previously, Dr. Green served on the staff of the National Security Council from 2001 through 2005. First, as Director for Asian Affairs with responsibility for Japan, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, and then as special assistant to the president for national security affairs and senior director for Asia with responsibility for East and South Asia. Dr. Green is also a member of numerous prominent think tanks and serves on the advisory boards of Radio Free Asia and the Center for New American, Center for New American Security as well as editorial boards of the Washington Quarterly and the Journal of Unification Studies in Korea. He also serves as a trustee at the Asia Foundation, senior advisor at the Asia Group and associate of the US intelligence community. Internationally, Dr. Green is a non-resident fellow at several institutes in Sydney and Tokyo. Dr. Green, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Amanda. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining me. Um, uh, last uh, year, before all of this COVID craziness, I had the great pleasure of speaking um, to students, faculty, and members of the intellectual community um, of IWP, and I'm uh, happy to do this again, although um, uh, I'm not in your beautiful brownstone building. I'm obviously at home like everyone else. Um, I've been asked to do an assessment of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, which is the, um, uh, the framework for the Trump administration's approach uh, to that region. Um, when I spoke uh, to IWP uh, last year, I spoke about uh, my book by More Than Providence, which was a history of US strategy um, towards the Indo-Pacific. Uh, from 1783 through the Obama administration. And there were very clear um, uh, points of continuity um, and there were very clear areas where the US struggled for over 200 years to find the right balance on trade, on human rights, um, where to draw our defensive line. And so I think uh, today I will do my best to put um, the Trump administration's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy into that historical narrative. How does it fit? with um, the traditions of American foreign policy? Um, how does it uh, work addressing the challenges we face? Um, and, uh, and which parts should be kept uh, regardless of who wins uh, in a week uh, or perhaps in many weeks in our election? Um, it's a tough time to do this in a way. Um, a social scientist, a historian can look at uh, data can look at history, but we're in a very, very charged political environment. Um, the most polarized this country has been in my lifetime. I'm barely old enough to remember the Vietnam War, um, uh, but certainly in my adult lifetime, we've never been so polarized um, as a country. Um, but one of the areas where there's probably the least amount of division in Congress uh, is strategy on Asia. Um, and that is also true, I think, for the general public and for thought leaders uh, across different sectors of our society. Um, I, I say this in part because uh, CSIS um, did a survey, which we published uh, the week before last, on attitudes towards China and China policy and China strategy among the American public, but also among thought leaders in 12 major groups, agriculture, business, labor, human rights community, um, national security experts, Congress. And um, the result was um, particularly among thought leaders, regardless of political party or sector of the economy, a broad overlap in views about what we have to do to compete with China. And so although we're in a very polarized, almost painfully polarized moment in our political history, 
Um, I, I, I think um, I'll find some uh, comfort and uh, some analytical um, stability uh, in, um, in the fact that on the China question, there's much less division in Congress or among experts than you might think, uh, given the fact that our two candidates are um, throwing everything but the kitchen sink at each other and often uh, over China policy. In fact, behind the scenes, the broad contours of an enduring strategy on China uh, with many debates to be resolved, but the broad contours of an American strategy on China and competition in the Indo-Pacific are evident. You can see it in the survey, which is on our website at CSIS. Um, and you can see it in some ways as a uh, continuation of an American strategic tradition in the Indo-Pacific that goes back, as I argue in my last book and my last lecture to IWP, uh, to 1783, which was uh, the year that Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to George Rogers Clark on the frontier in the last year of the American War for Independence, uh, warning that our spies in London had learned that the British were raising money to send an expedition across Canada to secure passage to the Pacific Northwest and then ultimately the Pacific Ocean. And Jefferson said in 1783, we cannot allow that to happen. And over the next 240 years, the United States um, clumsily, sometimes tardily, uh, sometimes violently, sometimes with great diplomatic skill, but nevertheless has always uh, risen to the challenge when we are faced with a rival hegemon that has tried to push us out of the Western Pacific. Um, it was Britain for the first part of our history, it was briefly Germany at the end of the 19th century, it was Japan in the first part of the 20th century, and then the Soviet Union. Now it's China. And China in some ways represents the most significant uh, and complex challenge uh, from a rival hegemon uh, in, in, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, because China is at the center of and is the most powerful country within the Indo-Pacific already. Um, and because we have very complex economic and, and, uh, in, and, 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 and other forms of interdependence with China, whether it's universities or academic exchange or tourism. And our allies do even more so. So it's the most complicated and most um, formidable challenge but I think as we look at the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy of this administration and what might continue in a second Trump term or in a Biden administration, I think it actually, the strategy fits within a tradition uh, that goes back 240 years that the United States will eventually organize itself to prevent uh, rival hegemons from pushing us out of Asia, which I believe, and I think the, the preponderance of opinion now among experts uh, also uh, agrees, is China's strategy. Not, not through force of arms, but through a combination of uh, coercion, gray zone coercion, belt and road initiatives, diplomacy, pressing our allies. Um, so how does the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy stack up in that contest? Um, I thought I'd spend a few minutes um, doing a ledger sheet or a, or, 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 or a report card using the classic um, you know, National War College, um, Army War College, Naval War College, formula for um, assessing strategy, which is the acronym DIME, which is um, a bit of a cliche for you if you've been in the military. Um, academics normally don't touch cliches, excuse me, touch acronyms, but I find it's a very useful one. DIME stands, of course, for D, diplomatic tools, I, intelligence, but I prefer to think of it as ideational, ideological informational tools, um, M are military instruments, and E are economic instruments. It's a, it's, a, it's a great acronym. Uh, you don't have to think about it long to remember it. And it will remind you when you look at a problem like China or a grand strategy of the different tools that you need to be thinking about. So briefly going through DIME and free and open Indo-Pacific and starting with D, um, diplomacy. Um, one of the strengths of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy as a concept, and it was announced first at CSIS in 2017 by then Secretary of State um, Tillerson. One of the advantages of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, from my perspective, is that it is a quintessentially American Asia strategy. Um, the idea that we should align with maritime uh, democracies like Japan, Australia, and, and India is as old as the US naval presence in the Western Pacific. Um, Commodore Matthew Perry came back from Japan in the 1850s, 
having opened Japan with his famous black ships and gave speeches in New York and Philadelphia uh, right before the American Civil War. So not many were listening, but, but I found them and put them in my book. He gave speeches arguing that someday um, the Stars and Stripes and the Cross of St. George uh, would fly over a combined fleet that would make the Pacific secure and that Japan would be in that. Japan, Britain, and America, the maritime powers, he argued, would preserve the open maritime order uh, of the Indo-Pacific that we depend on ourselves as a maritime state. Um, half a century later, Alfred Thayer Mahan, probably the greatest American strategic thinker, certainly the greatest naval strategist, also argued that someday uh, the security of the Pacific would be preserved by a quad. The quad he uh, identified was the US, Britain, and Japan, and in the 1890s, Germany, um, which was in favor in the United States in the 1890s, but, um, but Germany, of course, was knocked out of the Pacific in World War I. So if you look at Mahan, if you look at Perry, um, there's a long tradition of safeguarding a favorable strategic equilibrium and the sea lanes um, uh, based on Japan and Britain. Except today, instead of Britain, the quad is Australia and India, the former um, crown colonies. So uh, this, this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy has roots in American uh, tradecraft that I think are enduring. Um, and it also has the enormous advantage that the Japanese proposed it. The free and open Indo-Pacific strategy was not an original Trump administration idea. It was briefed to the State Department by the Japanese Foreign Ministry, which the year before had begun crafting a strategy uh, to combine Japan's interests in trade, in American preeminence, in Amer the preeminence of American alliances, um, and resistance to Chinese coercion, uh, but not as a containment strategy, rather as an open and inviting framework. And so the fact that the Trump administration made Japan's trademark strategy the American strategy, at least nominally, there are some important differences we can talk about, that was pretty smart diplomacy too. Um, in 2012 and 13, Xi Jinping proposed to the United States uh, what he called a new model of great power relations. Um, and the idea was that to avoid the so-called Thucydides trap of American and Chinese confrontation, much like Athens and Sparta, uh, the only way out was for the US and China to have a new model of great power relations in which basically the US would accommodate China's uh, expansion peacefully uh, and prioritize that over the interests of our allies, Japan, uh, Australia, and our friends, and partners, Taiwan, India. At the time, the Obama administration was divided. There were some senior officials who thought it was a good idea. There were others who thought it was a terrible idea because our alliances are our strength in the region. In a poll by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs in 2012, a plurality of Americans said it would be better to prioritize cooperation with China even if it hurts relations with our allies like Japan, uh, rather than the other way around. So a plurality of Americans said it was the way to go when presented that as an option. In 2019, when the Chicago Council on Global Affairs asked that same question, a significant majority of Americans said, no, it is better to prioritize cooperation with Japan and traditional allies to deal with China rather than seeking a bipolar condominium or prioritizing cooperation with China. And in our survey this year, we asked um, uh, the public and thought leaders, and 81% of thought leaders in, in national security, but, but also in agriculture and labor, 81% said prioritize cooperation with our allies, even if it hurts relations with China. Only single digits said prioritize cooperation with China. So this aspect of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, aligning with our allies, uh, focusing on a maritime strategy um, is enduring. And I think that even if President, uh, if President Trump loses and we have a Biden administration, whether or not they call it the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, I think that aspect of strategic competition and where we align ourselves is going to endure and will be a legacy. Still on the D part of the acronym though, on, on diplomacy, um, that large conceptual framework aside, there are some significant shortcomings that have got to be corrected, uh, or we will not win this competition. Uh, one is the Korean Peninsula. 
Um, uh, President Trump has repeatedly said he wants to pull US troops off the Korean Peninsula. He has demanded over 400% increases in uh, what the Korean government pays for US bases. Um, his administration is putting or appears to be putting the US-Korea alliance in play. Um, I don't think it's in play. Support for our alliance is strong in Korea. That came out in our survey, where we also surveyed Koreans. But I think Beijing looks at the difficulties in the US-Korea alliance right now um, and sees an opportunity. And um, I think that there's a very real possibility that President Trump does want to pull US troops out of Korea precipitously which would be an enormous onside goal, an enormous defeat to our alliance network in Asia. The country that, other than Korea, that is most opposed to this happening is Japan, which is at the core of our Quad and our free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Maritime Asia and Japan uh, cannot abide a hostile hegemon dominating the Korean Peninsula. So uh, this is not an option for us. And I think one of the weak points in the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy diplomatically is the Korean Peninsula. Uh, the other weak point in geopolitical terms is Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia, it was quite clear in our survey, um, has a variety of different threat perceptions. Um, the Vietnamese and the Philippines in our survey and many others are, are very alarmed at and hostile to China's coercion. Other countries, including close partners like Singapore, are not so alarmed or are more alarmed by the US pushback than by what China's doing. And um, it was interesting when we asked in our survey in Asia, which presidential candidate would be better for your country when it comes to China policy, uh, Joe Biden won everywhere, but there were two countries where Donald Trump uh, uh, did better, uh, India and Vietnam. Um, uh, so there are countries in Southeast Asia like Vietnam um, that are ready to, you know, be quite tough with China. They'll be careful about their cooperation with us, but they'll do more, particularly with Japan when they can, or India, to maintain a balance of power. But other Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, while they are, their leaders are concerned about Chinese hegemony, um, they're not prepared to sign on to the U.S. strategy as it's currently configured. When the administration pitched the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy in Southeast Asia, the response was, don't tell us what our strategy should be. Uh, the Japanese heard that and they changed the name actually. So in Japan, it's now called the free and open Indo-Pacific concept in a way to entice and invite Southeast Asian countries to come in on their own terms, uh, to offer them infrastructure support and development, uh, aid, capacity building for their maritime domain awareness and their navies, but on their own terms. Um, one problem under D, under diplomacy, is the way we've taken this free and open Indo-Pacific strategy on the road to Southeast Asia has been uh, discordant, has not um, played. When we're on the right side of self-strengthening, uh, we usually can win. And right now, the way to do that is more the way Japan's doing it. Uh, not asking countries to choose, but showing up at multilateral meetings, providing infrastructure assistance, providing capacity building. The US has been doing that um, over the past three uh, administrations, Bush, Obama, and Trump. Um, but in Southeast Asia, all the surveys show we're falling behind and that much of the region thinks that China is, um, is, 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 is outpacing us in terms of geopolitical influence. It came through in a survey CSIS did, a survey by the uh, Institute for Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore. So I think pretty clear metrics that in Southeast Asia, uh, the free and Pacific strategy is not working well. So it's working well with the big maritime powers, Japan and India and Australia, very well, I'd say. And I hope that aspect continues. The weak links are the Korean Peninsula and Southeast Asia. I, um, you know, in the war colleges, they teach that's intelligence, but I, 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 I would prefer for purposes of grand strategy to think of it as um, ideas, ideational ideology. Are we winning the narrative uh, in our competition with China in the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy? I mean, in some ways, we're losing and so is China. Um, surveys, including CSIS surveys, show that the general impression is that both the US and China have lost influence because of COVID-19. Um, but in terms of what we have to offer, um, multiple surveys show quite clearly that democracy, human rights, women's empowerment, free and fair elections, good governance, those are principles 
that sell in Asia much better than the so-called Beijing consensus or Xi Jinping's common destiny quite well. Um, so the ideas that are represented by not only the United States, but importantly, allies who have themselves succeeded with these democratic principles, not just Japan, but countries like Korea or Indonesia, that demonstration effect, that's what citizens and thought leaders in countries like Cambodia or Thailand or even Vietnam want. They don't want uh, a, 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 a Xi Jinping style of governance. They want Chinese money. They want Chinese technology. But the form of government they're looking for, we've won that debate. This is not like the Cold War, where in these post-colonial states, communism had real purchase and real attraction uh, during the 50s and 60s. It's not like that. We, we have the winning formula. Uh, the problem is we're not selling it as well as we could. Um, part of it is that we are turning a blind eye to um, uh, human rights abuses by some of our close allies, like um, Duterte in the Philippines, um, or what's happening in Thailand with the protests against um, the government, uh, a government established by a coup. Um, we have a very tough call to make when it comes to these issues. If we push too hard, we risk pushing our allies and partners into the hands of our adversaries. But if we ignore the lack of governance, the lack of um, democratic norms, if we ignore that, we risk um, allowing uh, states to be so brittle and so rigid that they can become illiberal and therefore even more prone to outside influence or even more prone to bribery and corruption. So our strategy has to be backed by support for governance, democratic governance. You want to stop Belt and Road from creating um, neo-colonial expansion in Asia? Support civil society and a free press and, and parliaments and accountability and transparency. That levels the playing field. And polls show that these um, uh, societies in Asia want more of that, more governance and more accountability. So it's a long game. We're playing it not as well as we could. And part of the problem is President Trump himself, who has a unmistakable affinity for strongmen, um, which undercuts part of our message. But we also haven't done enough to take advantage of the example of a Japan or a Korea or Indonesia. We've, we've often uh, tried to do these from Washington in too unilateral a way. Our survey um, showed that there's much more support among foreign policy experts in places like Japan and Korea for democracy and good governance as a theme than we've traditionally come to expect. And we need to find ways to build coalitions so that it's not just the United States, um, that it's countries that have made these choices and succeeded in Asia. So that's I, a lot more can be said, but that's I. On M, on military, um, I think the, um, you know, the Pentagon in some ways is the most consistent actor from one administration to the next. Uh, the biggest difference from Obama to Trump is that the Obama administration, while it announced the pivot and worked um, actively to expand capacity building in Southeast Asia, you know, was a partner with Japan for the new defense guidelines in 2015, uh, worked with Korea to upgrade um, our contingency planning, um, in particular in response to provocations by North Korea. The defense diplomacy and engagement moved forward uh, quite rapidly. Uh, in the Obama administration, but the Pentagon was hampered by sequestration, if you recall that, by um, an unwillingness by the administration and the Congress to find a compromise that would allow the increases in defense spending we need to maintain deterrence at a time when China is expanding rapidly, is creating basically a new Japanese Navy every decade. Trump administration's increased defense spending. That's a good thing. Um, president, uh, presidential candidate Biden has said which is interesting that we may need to increase defense spending. He has not said we will decrease it, which frankly is what most democratic presidential candidates do say in the campaign. And it's not a guarantee that President Trump, if he's reelected, will continue to increase defense spending. Um, but kudos to the administration and on a bipartisan basis, the Congress and the, um, and the Senate Armed Services Committee and House Armed Services Committee and the Appropriations Committees for, for, for spending more on defense than we have previously. Um, we have a lot of catching up to do in terms of our capabilities set. And um, we can talk more about it in the Q&A, but um, I think we are starting to move in that direction and it needs to continue. 
Um, we have um, uh, hypersonic weaponry that is necessary. Um, for 15 years, counterinsurgency campaigns in CENTCOM uh, meant that we weren't spending or innovating on basic things like the range of our surface-to-surface -surface missiles so that for a while, and still in many cases, uh, Chinese frigates and destroyers have a longer range set of missiles on them than our frigates and destroyers. We're correcting that. Um, we're correcting um, shortfalls in readiness and munitions. Um, we're exercising more realistically, at least until COVID. We're doing more freedom of navigation operations. There is more uh, edge to our military um, uh, presence and visibility in the region, which I think is good. Um, I think the inclination among the defense experts around presidential candidate Biden are to continue that. Um, but the Democratic tent is a big tent, so we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, there are a couple areas where we're not stepping up. One is command and control relationships. We need combined, uh, we have joint and combined commands with Korea and that's it. We have nothing like NATO and Asia, joint and combined commands. We have separate bilateral arrangements, they're all different. We need to upgrade our command and control relationships. Um, we need to, um, we need to uh, 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 stop talking about pulling out of Korea. Um, so there are some things where we need to step up, but M is probably the military component of, of the Trump administration strategy is probably uh, one area where a, a Biden Pentagon, should there be one, will actually not change as much uh, as one would expect after such a polarized um, election. But whether defense spending keeps up or not is an open question. Um, and finally, E, economics. Here, here we have a real problem. Um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership would have passed in the Congress, I believe, if Hillary Clinton had won. She opposed it because that was politically convenient, knowing that if she won, the votes were there in the lame duck session. Uh, but she lost. And you know, Mr. Trump opposed it, and he meant it, and he pulled out. And I defy you to find an experienced Asia hand who does not think this was an enormous mistake strategically, geopolitically, um, because TPP would have created um, a rulemaking body of the most powerful economies in Asia um, and would have put enormous pressure on China that would have given us far greater leverage to negotiate with China than we have with our unilateral tariff wars and would have set up enormous leverage for us to go to Europe uh, and begin closing the enormous gap we have with Europe on key issues of technology and intellectual property rights and trade and, and begin moving towards more of a global set of rules to constrain China and uh, force China to pay a cost for its predatory economics for made in China 2025. Um, but instead what we've done is um, taken a unilateral, in some cases bilateral approach. Um, there's not much that recommends it in terms of geopolitics, uh, except for one area, um, and that is technology, because TPP was not as focused on uh, emerging technologies. Um, and uh, where the Trump administration has negotiated bilateral agreements, they're pretty weak with Japan, with, with USMCA, except in one area, which is that the US-Japan agreement and the USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada agreement, contain uh, chapters in them on digital trade that are good. and um, I don't see a Biden administration or a Trump administration doing what is now called CPTPP, the politics aren't there in the US. But there's an opportunity and there's bipartisan support for this on the Hill for a digital trade agreement and for um, expanding cooperation among um, the top technology countries in the world, which in Asia would include Japan, Korea, would include Australia um, uh, and Taiwan uh, to set rules around things we agree on, like keeping Chinese companies, Huawei, ZTE, out of our 5G markets, but also finding the right approach to export controls, because um, uh, all of us are still quite dependent on the China market for exporting semiconductors, and there's no political support for completely cutting that off in places like Japan or Taiwan or Korea or Europe, or even in the United States. So we're better, we hang together or we hang separately. We're better off setting these rules around technology competition with a core group in Asia. And I think, although pulling out of TPP was really a self-defeating move, um, and the bilateral trade agreements with Japan and 
the redo of NAFTA are pretty weak in terms of trade liberalization, they do contain some gems. And those are the digital trade agreements. And uh, that is something the next administration could work on because without an economic strategy in Asia, um, we can't compete. We can't compete. So that's a rolling assessment, if you will, of, of, of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy using the DIME framework. There are aspects of this strategy that Donald Trump, through his personal worldview, unpredictability, you know, his, his love affair with Kim Jong-un, his attack on allies, there, there are aspects of this strategy where he has taken a wrecking ball to what the State Department and the NSC and the Pentagon have done. There are aspects of the strategy that um, a Biden administration would be foolish to throw because they've been successful. Um, and I hope that after the campaign, no matter who wins, we'll be in a place as a country to actually have a careful assessment of what has worked and what hasn't. And whoever comes in, uh, I hope that policy planning and the NSC sit down and do not a ideological uh, chest thumping because they won, but do an do an honest self-assessment of what has worked and what hasn't. And maybe this discussion contributes a little bit to that. So I'll end there, uh, uh, Amanda. Thank you. I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you, Dr. Green. And from now on, we will take questions. If you have any questions, you can please uh, type in, in the Q&A um, chat box. Right. So the first question is, does the FOIP strategy represent a retreat from hegemony for the U.S.? Does, does FOIP, the Free and Open Indo-Pacific Strategy, represent a retreat from hegemony? Uh, no, no. Um, the, um, uh, one of the questions I ask my students at Georgetown, and if they're listening, they're not going to have a hint on the final exam. One of the questions I often ask is whether primacy is necessary for the US to achieve its goals in Asia. Does the US have to be the most powerful country in Asia? Um, probably yes, because otherwise it's hard to know how order and stability would continue. But it's also worth remembering that in our history, in fact, for most of our history, we expanded our power and influence in Asia steadily for 200 years without being the most powerful country in the region. Asia was a multipolar system in the 19th and early 20th centuries, where you had Japan, Britain, Russia, China, um, all vying for influence. And so that multipolarity is a little bit like what Asia is starting to look like today. I, I would argue the US is still the most powerful country by most metrics in Asia, certainly globally, uh, but China's catching up and in some metrics surpassing us. Um, but we should not forget Japan and India and Korea and Indonesia. And when you look at the um, array of middle and major powers in this multipolar mix that's emerging in Asia, almost all of them would rather work with us than China, certainly on security. And so uh, strategies like the Quad and the Free and Open Indo Pacific uh, leverage that, um, leverage that multipolarity and move away from uh, the belief with the conceit that Xi Jinping has been pushing that this is a bipolar Asia, that it's now a US-China Asia. It's not. And when we give Japan and India and Australia and Korea and Indonesia a vote, we get those votes. Um, we don't get a NATO, we don't get collective security, but we manage a multipolar Asia that is to our enormous advantage and, and none of these countries are gonna choose China. Um, so that's not a retreat from hegemony. It's, it's, a, it's in some ways an American um, external balancing strategy that Nixon used when he pulled the China card on Russia, um, uh, or that um, uh, Bill Clinton used when he reaffirmed and strengthened the US-Japan alliance to deal with China in the 90s, or George W. Bush used when he used the India card in the 2000s, or Barack Obama used when he used the pivot to Asia and started engaging Southeast Asian war. So it's not a retreat from hegemony, it's reinforcing the order that, 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 that we benefit from. Where we've been weak is, um, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're preferencing Australia, Japan, and India when there are other polls that should be much more important to us like Korea and Indonesia. And uh, we're, not, um, we're not pitching ourselves and our, and our place in Asia and their place in Asia in the right way to those countries. 
Thank you. And the next question is, given how wrong the traditional experts have been in the Middle East, is it possible Trump's policies in the Pacific will prove to be the right ones? Well, I can't speak for my colleagues who work on the Middle East, but we Asia experts have almost always been right, of course. So, um, you know, the, 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 the Middle East experts, um, uh, many of them predicted that um, uh, the Middle East would never, never take to democracy. Others said, no, no, after Iraq, democracy will transform the Middle East. In a way, they were both wrong. Um, in Asia, the Asia experts, when I was going to school in the 80s, you know, the, the most famous Asia experts, Lucian Pai at MIT, Nat Thayer at CSI, at, uh, excuse me, at SICE, where I studied, um, uh, Bob Scalapino at, at Berkeley. I mean, the most famous Asia experts in the 80s were saying, don't try to promote democracy. Uh, Asian countries, they were saying the same thing as the Middle East experts. Asian, Asian societies, Asian countries like collective political organization, you know, individualism doesn't work in traditional Confucianism. And you heard all of these cultural arguments about why democracy wouldn't take in the 80s. And what happened after these great men published their books? It, uh, Philippines democratized, Korea democratized, Taiwan democratized, Indonesia democratized. Um, Japan had a revolution and became more democratic. Um, so I think that aspect of Asia's trajectory um, a new generation of Asia experts recognize. It's very different. The, the younger generation of Asia experts recognize how, how important this aspect of the region is. And it's an advantage for the US. And um, so in that aspect, yeah, Asian experts have also been wrong from time to time. But I think, um, I th I think there's a broad, a broad consensus about this. Now, are China experts right about China's intentions? A lot of China experts predicted that that, that China would converge with the U.S. on some key issues like climate change and 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 and, and strategic competition uh, wouldn't you know erupt between the U.S. and China, and they were wrong. Strategic competition is here, um, but there are nevertheless areas where we do need to cooperate with China. Um, and so, um, I guess what I would say is the the, the experts are never one hundred percent right, but um, you need to consider their arguments. And uh, and uh, in the case of Asia, I think. Um, there is a very broad consensus now, um, including in the region, it's evident in the polls, that um, American leadership is actually much preferred across the region to Chinese leadership. How we, how we make use of that, whether we're smart enough to earn it, that's another question. And the next question is, how do you perceive the role of newly elected Japanese Prime Minister Shuga impacting the US-Japan relationship and over the Indo-Pacific strategy? So um, Suga-san, uh, I, I know Suga-san quite well. I, I, he, he's famous for having breakfasts at the Capital Tokyo Hotel with scholars. And, and, uh, and I was one of those people he liked to invite to breakfast and pick my brain in Japanese. Um, and um, he, was always, he didn't tell me a lot, to be honest. He was mostly on receive mode. He studied very, very hard um, and was keen to meet the US ambassador and other international experts because his job as chief cabinet secretary meant that he did not travel much. He only traveled to the US once when he had that role as Abe's you know, right-hand man. <clears throat> um, but what I think a lot of people don't appreciate is he was also one of the architects of Abe's foreign policy. And the National Security Council staff reported to him as well. And so he's very knowledgeable about geopolitics. And I think it's quite clear his highest foreign policy priority is a strong U.S.-Japan alliance. But um, he couldn't come to the U.S. because we are having an election. And um, it's very toxic. And there's a huge risk for him to come and, and try to meet President Trump or uh, former Vice President Biden and all the potential things that could go wrong. <laughs> um, so instead, he went to Vietnam and Indonesia, which was smart because what is Japan's value to the next administration? Well, a big part of it is that Japan is the most popular country in Southeast Asia by a wide margin, that Japan is building capacity in Vietnam, that Japan is building uh, diplomatic ties to Southeast Asia. Japan is translating the FOIP, the Korean Open Indo-Pacific concept into something Southeast Asians can agree to. And so in, in, in this way, I think Suga is showing the value of Japan to the US. I don't hear anybody saying, you know, this is what used to be called Datsube Nyua, you know, anti-Americanism choosing Asia over the US. That's not what it is. This is taking the principles and strategy of the US-Japan Alliance as Japan's new prime minister to Asia. 
uh, as a power within Asia and explaining it and, and cooperating in a way that resonates well with, with some key countries like Vietnam and Indonesia. It's a smart play. I've also um, uh, gotten the sense that Sugal, though he's had a little bit of a, of a drop in the polls, is stabilizing over 50% popularity. So I think the biggest question for Sugasan is not the direction, which is Abe's direction for foreign policy. It's can he win an election and stay in power? Because Japan's pattern is to have a powerful prime minister and then a bunch of short-term prime ministers and a lot of turmoil. That's what happened before Abe came back to power. So I'm beginning to get the sense, reading the tea leaves, that Suga will pull it out, that he'll be quite successful in the election next year and that he'll be in power for a while. I, hard to know for sure, but that's a good thing uh, for the US, frankly, um, and for a lot of uh, uh, key players in Asia. The next question is, besides technological aspects, are there any other economic drivers for, for a comprehensive plan with partner nations you would suggest? Um, if, you know, we ought to have um, an agenda for every country in Asia that's developed by the embassies uh, with the Indo-Pacific Command, with help from Washington, that speaks to the people in that country that says the United States is here to help us be more resilient, um, more prosperous, healthier, um, and not to, you know, um, uh, try to create a neocolonial, you know, dependency like Huawei, excuse me, like China's done with Belt and Road in Laos, for example, or, or, or Sri Lanka or Nepal. <laughs> um, and that the, the US is actually here to help. And that that strategy ought to be designed in every one of these countries in partnership with Japan, Australia, India, and Korea, and the Europeans. And that we all, all ought to play our, 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 our part. And in some cases, Japan will have strengths and some will have strengths. And, and that it should begin with a listening tour uh, for the next administration. And, um, uh, and it'll look a little different for every country. But for example, with Indonesia, Indonesia is promoting democracy in its own way. The Indonesia Bali Democracy Forum includes Iran because uh, of the Islamic connection. Um, we shouldn't say that's a bad idea. We should say, great, you know, promote democracy. It's gonna be different from the way we do it, but we, 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 we respect and trust Indonesia because of your success with democracy. Um, with Korea, we ought to be working an agenda that's beyond the Korean Peninsula, because um, Korea is, is an important model for countries like Cambodia or Myanmar, uh, because of Korea's success democratizing. So we ought to come up with an agenda for, for our partners in Asia that's about helping them, but also how they help others. And I think if we do that in a systematic way with allies and partners, that's a pretty powerful narrative in the region. Uh, when, when, when China is offering technology, and we should not be saying, don't do Belt and Road. We should saying, sure, do Belt and Road. Here's our alternative, which is more transparent, more sustainable, no debt traps, no corruption. Um, we shouldn't go in and say, don't choose China. We should make a really powerful case with friends and allies and partners why our narrative and our support is going to help them be more resilient and why other partners in Asia are working with us to help them. That's that's what we're not doing well right now. We're not doing that very well at all. And there's an appetite for that everywhere in the region, everywhere, except maybe North Korea. Um, and we're not taking advantage of it. Thank you. And the next question is, where does India stand in this strategy? Um, it's an interesting question. And uh, people often measure the India card in US strategy by um, agreements, bilateral agreements. So the US and India just this week signed an agreement for intelligence sharing that's quite significant. And so, so people focus on that. Or they look at the Quad meetings and say, well, you know, the Indian statement on the Quad and the American statement are different, so we're not really aligned. And a lot of the focus, because a lot of get paid, people get paid to work on this in Washington, a lot of the focus is whether or not India is aligning with us. It's starting to look more like Japan or Australia as an ally and a partner. And the reality is India is moving closer to the US. The Chinese see it, everyone sees it. But India also has a nine aligned tradition that, that is quite powerful still. Um, India has internal security problems and problems with Pakistan. Um, and India has development problems. And you know, increasingly India has some challenges with respect to open societies 
um, and civil liberties even. Um, so it's big and messy and complicated. Um, so the way I think about India um, goes back to um, a, a document that the Reagan Library declassified, Ronald Reagan's National Security Council in 1982 uh, um, came to the conclusion and I got the document and declassified and put it in my book uh, that, and this is in 1982, uh, that India's success uh, is in US interests. That if India is able to um, create stability in South Asia, uh, that's in US interest regardless of whether or not India becomes a US ally. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. If India has the ability to um, prevent the Indian Ocean from being penetrated by the PLA Navy, um, to secure South Asia with assistance and trade and diplomacy, um, uh, that's, a, that's a win for us. That's a win for us. And um, we want to cooperate with India. We want to do intelligence sharing. There are some small steps forward. But I think we overfocus on that alignment piece when, in fact, in a multipolar Asia, a powerful Asia is what matters. For my book, when I interviewed um, Kissinger and uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and Harold Brown and, and Wynne Lord and others who were there in 71 and 72 and 79, when we were building the China card against the Soviets, um, it was interesting interviewing them because their first thought was not China will align with us. Their first thought was China's too weak. We need China to be powerful so that it complicates Soviet planning. So it pulls Soviet divisions away from NATO. So that it makes it harder for the Soviets to intimidate Japan. It's not dissimilar with the India card. Um, we should make, we want India to be successful. And, um, and, and we don't have enough of that in our strategic mindset about India. Because it is going to be a, a complicated process, even though they are steadily, thanks to China, aligning more and more with us. Next question is, is there a possibility of a NATO-Asia that is a true military alliance? Um, only if Xi Jinping goes way too far. Um, some people say the Quad is an empty vessel, US, Japan, Australia, India meet, but there's nothing to it. I disagree. The utility of the Quad to me, one of the greatest advantages of the Quad is it's a reminder to Beijing that four of the most powerful navies in the world could, if we decided to, create a NATO, create a collective security arrangement that would be absolutely impenetrable for the PLA and for China uh, trying to secure sea lanes to the Middle East. Now, I, I don't think, you know, if I were in government, I wouldn't say that part out loud. And I don't think that the Quad members want to say that part too loud. I, I think Secretary Pompeo would like to, but I don't think Jaishankar or Motegi or Payne want to say that part out loud, but that's the implicit um, leverage that comes from the Quad is it, it shows the potential if China pushes us too far, um, but uh, they'd have to really push us too far. And um, for the most part, we're looking at a much more complicated set of relationships. Um, and we have to think about it differently from NATO, obviously. Um, we need to think about how the US-Japan alliance or the US-Australia alliance can be a hub for broadening networks and partnerships. We need to think about whether we can create what at CSS we call federated defense, where maybe um, we help an India or a Japan or Australia or a Korea or a Vietnam develop the capacity for interoperability. They may buy different platforms, different systems, different ships, but we should work on making sure we can operate together if we have to. Um, so it, it requires us to think uh, creatively in a very, in a real patchwork of relationships um, that will not become a NATO um, uh, unless we fail. If deterrence fails, then yeah, there might be a possibility for NATO because China will have crossed the line, a very, very dangerous line, but we don't want that scenario. So short of a NATO, we need to find ways to network these security relationships and alliances in a series of concentric circles, in a series of overlapping Venn diagrams in that context the core will be our alliances, Japan, Australia, especially, um, but there'll be a role for the US-Korea alliance. There will be a role for trilateral arrangements like we have with Japan and Australia for the quad and for broader multilateral groupings. Um, and it's a complex overlapping set of relationships. Um, that's a real opportunity for us. Um, and, uh, and one that I think India, Japan, Australia, other partners and allies see as well. 
We have some more questions. Uh, for the US, what is the most underutilized partner in Asia in terms of balancing against China? And how could the next administration better use this relationship? Example, uh, economically, strategically, and technologically, et cetera. Uh, my answer might surprise you, but I would answer Korea. Um, the US-Korea alliance is a very powerful alliance. It's our only joint and combined command. And for anyone in the audience who's served in US Forces Korea or, or in the State Department or the Pentagon, you may have been to some of the exercises we do with Korea or the command bunker or other things uh, where you see Korean officers and American officers commanding each other in exercises like we do in NATO. That's that, that joint and combined command and that relationship, that, that, that set of, of, of contingency plans, that's incredibly powerful. Um, and polls show that Koreans and Americans trust each other and value that alliance. Um, but we have some problems. One is, as I mentioned, President Trump has really gone after the US-Korea alliance in demanding really completely unrealistic increases in um, what the Koreans pay. They should do more in Korea, but, but putting a you know, transactional real estate sign up saying, you gotta pay me 400% or I'm out of here, it's incredibly dangerous geopolitically because who's going to applaud that? Beijing, Moscow, and Pyongyang. And then the Korean government under Moon Jae-in also is a problem because um, they are absolutely fixated, myopically fixated on a peace treaty and, and, and engagement with North Korea. Um, and what we're missing because of that um, is how important the US-Korea alliance is in a geopolitical context in Asia. Now, the Korean side strategy is what they call strategic ambiguity. They don't want to do what Japan's doing or what Australia is now doing increasingly, which is exercising with and cooperating with the US to prevent Chinese hegemony in Asia. But the Koreans bring enormous assets. They provide as much democracy support uh, in Asia as Australia or Japan uh, in terms of funding from COICA or close to it. Um, they provide significant capacity building to the Vietnamese Navy, the, the Philippines. Um, the, the Koreans invest uh, over a fifth of Vietnam's GDP in Samsung, a Korean company, huge investments in Southeast Asia. And the Korean example of democratization is very powerful when you talk to people in, on both sides of the debates in Cambodia, in Myanmar, in Indonesia. So we've got to find a way to leverage the US-Korea alliance, but it can't be exactly the way we do it with Japan and Australia. To me, that's the, that's the, the missing link. There are other countries I can name a, lo a long list we could do more with, uh, Indonesia for sure. Um, uh, Vietnam, uh, tricky, but we, there's, there's growth there. But the one that is an enormous asset already that's not being skillfully applied is the US-Korea alliance. We're myopic, we have to focus on North Korea. That's, that's, that's the reality, but we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Thank you. And the next question is, do you think President Trump's bid to garner additional funding from South Korea for US troop presence is applied to justify a partial or whole troop reduction or does just not care? I think personally, I haven't spoken to President Trump, but I've spoken to some members of Congress who are close to him. I've spoken to people in the administration who believe that this is uh, heading towards, if there's a second Trump administration heading towards an announcement we're pulling out of Korea and NATO. And uh, the only thing that gives me some comfort in that is that um, you could count on one hand the members of Congress who think that's a good idea, including in the, especially in the Republican Party. When President Trump threatened to do that previously, it was Republicans like Lindsey Graham and Dan Sullivan um, and Joni Ernst who put into the um, Senate, Senate uh, 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 NDAA, the Defense Authorization Act, uh, uh, amendments saying you can't pull out, you can't use this money to pull troops out of Korea. Um, so I worry about it a lot. And I think people who follow US-Korea relations in Washington are, are generally worried about that scenario. Um, doesn't mean we shouldn't be pressing for more burden sharing, um, but we should do it in a smart way. In some ways, uh, Japan is also under pressure uh, to do more. And Japan should do more. Japan's per capita defense spending, even though Abe has increased defense spending, Japan's per capita spending is the same as Bermuda or Barbados. And North Korea and China are not in the Caribbean. So Japan should be doing more, but instead of you know, saying, we're gonna spend this much to pay for your bases, the Japanese are saying, we're gonna spend more and we're gonna do more 
in space, with cyber, with strike capabilities, with um, we've changed the interpretation of the constitution in Japan so that we can now jointly operate with you. We're gonna take more risk. We're gonna take more missions. Th that's what we should be pushing for. Not a kind of real estate transaction. How much money can I claim I got? And if they don't do it, I'm pulling up my marbles and going home. That, maybe that's a good way to kickstart the, the, the negotiation. Maybe a little crazy helps at the outset, but, but I really do worry that President Trump wants to pull out. Um, he doesn't want to pull out of Japan. And so in Japan, they're taking that little bit of craziness and they're using it to make the case for more missions, more risk, more interoperability, more jointness, all of which is more deterrence and more stability and complicates China's planning. And, um, and so there's a way you do the burden sharing argument. And the way the administration is doing it right now might be the way you open a negotiation, but it's, 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 it's taken a wrecking ball to the credibility of our alliances. Well, due to the limited time after this question, we'll just take two more questions. So you, uh, the United States lies between two oceans and in the North and in the South, these two countries pose no threats to the United States. Based on these facts, I think the best national security strategy is for the US to mind its own business. What's your take? When we did our public opinion survey at CSIS, about 15% of the public felt that way. And, uh, I forget the exact number, but like 3% of leaders in um, human rights organizations, agricultural trade, business, tech, finance, um, uh, national security. So that view is out there, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, in Congress, you know, one senator believes it, Rand Paul, maybe Mike Lee a little bit. Um, the only House member who really articulates that is Matthew Goetz, but he's kind of, um, Anyway, enough about that. Um, uh, so it's it's a view, but my I think that in the American public, looking at surveys of of leaders in different sectors of the economy uh, and the general public, that's not where the country is. Uh, people recognize that um, if uh, yes, we're safe from Canada, and you know I guess we're safe from Mexico too, but if uh, if we pull up our marbles and leave the Western Pacific and allow Chinese hegemony, then the Chinese will um, uh, dominate uh, technology. Uh, they will dominate um, the Pacific. Um, we will find that um, instead of our ideas having and our technology and our trade having traction all across Asia, we'll be retreating back and desperately trying to defend our own way of life, our own security, our own technology. But when we're forward engaged, when we're reliable, when we have allies, then we can draw on the technological power, on the democratic norms of big, powerful countries like Japan, like India, like Australia, like Korea. And it's a cheap strategy. We've maintained primacy with fewer than 100,000 troops in Asia for 40 years. And no empire in history has had such a cheap strategy. Um, and the um, costs will be very, very expensive if, as happened in 1941 and 1950, we have to fight our way back into Asia. And Asia is so important, that's what we will have to do um, if, if we retreat. So I think it's an interesting view. There's, 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 a, there's a handful of people in Congress who subscribe to it, but all the polls show that's not where the American people are. Because people know um, where they export their soybeans to. They know where their technology comes from. Increasingly, Asian and Asian Pacific Americans are major, major players in our foreign policy politics. And I'm quite confident about that isolationism will be in American politics, um, but it will be marginal for the most part. The only, the only curiosity now is we have a president for the first time since uh, the 1930s who articulates it sometimes. Um, but, but I think that's um, uh, an anomaly of politics and it's not where polls or members of Congress demonstrate the American public's broad mainstream view is of our, of our purpose. Thank you. And the next question is, how may the United States foster a more harmonious relationship with South Korea relationship to include promoting the Japan and, uh, and South Korea relationship, aiming to be more inclusive and welcoming to South Korea for the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy? So this kind of links to the last question because the fact that we are 
still, still, in spite of my criticism of the Trump administration, still largely seen as reliable by our allies um, and partners, and and still seen as um, an honest broker, um, which flows from our our presence. Um, Korea cannot survive. Progressives and conservatives in Korea, I believe, Korea cannot survive in a world without the U.S.-Korea alliance because of the historic rivalry and 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 hegemonic ambitions of Russia and China and Japan. Um, uh, so we have a position in Asia uh, of considerable influence and leverage um, uh, if we're subtle. And being subtle is not always an American <clears throat> diplomatic trait. But in the case of Japan and Korea, we do have the ability. Um, to um, help those two countries turn uh, the corner, I, I believe. Um, if you look at the surveys we've done at CSIS or others have done uh, about the future of Asia, when it comes to the importance of the U.S. presence, the importance of democracy, the importance of, of clear global trading rules, no two countries in Asia are more closely aligned than Japan and Korea about the future they want for Asia. Um, but they're badly divided on the past, as you know. And um, so how can the US play in that? Well, it's, it's not gonna work if we, there are two things we should not do. One is what President Trump did, which is say, I don't wanna get involved, I'm too busy. He basically said as much. That does not help at all. It, it actually makes it too easy for the worst instincts in Seoul and Tokyo to prevail. On the other hand, I, be, I will be honest, I worry a little bit that some people in the Biden camp think they're gonna ride in on a white horse and tell the Koreans and Japanese to knock it off and get along and start trying to uh, come up with a solution to a history issue that's incredibly complex and emotional and beyond the ability of American diplomacy to fix. So what we do is something in the middle. We focus on the agenda that unites us. And that includes capacity building. Uh, it includes support for democracy. It includes preparing for contingencies on the Korean Peninsula. So there's a lot the US can do to keep Japan and Korea focused on that forward-looking agenda. Um, but that's, those, that is one of the many um, advantages of being forward in Asia. We can shape the environment. If we pull back, it, we're just going to sit behind the Pacific Ocean and hope it all works out. And history has, has clearly demonstrated, um, and we've had to learn that lesson painfully in 41 and 1950, it doesn't work out in our favor when we pull back. Um, so um, the Japan-Korea piece is important because we can shape that, and that Japan-Korea relationship in turn will shape Asia. And we'll demonstrate that the future is about democracy, good governance, open and, 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 and clear trading rules, not historic grievances, which is what China is selling right now to Korea and the rest of Asia. And the last question for today's lecture is, how do you see the establishment of Indo-Pacific Charter and Secretariat? I'm sorry, can you say that again? The Indo? No, you're, you're on mute. Sorry, how do you see the establishment of Indo-Pacific Charter and Secretariat? Um, I'm not exactly sure what that's referring to. Um, there have been some proposals um, to um, institutionalize the Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, and there have been informal, not informal, official, but, but, um, but, uh, but not um, decision-making meetings of uh, of many countries in Hawaii with US officials to discuss the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, but I think institutionalizing something like the Quad um, uh, is not helpful or necessary at this point. Um, what needs institutionalization uh, would be our alliances. We need the US-Japan alliance to have more joint and combined like command relationships. We need the Japan-Australia uh, relationship to have that. India is not ready for that kind of institutionalization. I don't think we should push it. The other thing people talk about institutionalizing is the um, is the is the ASEAN Regional Forum and the broader multilateral meetings in Asia. They're not working well. Um, uh, great power politics uh, create a not very benign um, operating environment for multilateral groupings like the ASEAN Regional Forum or the East Asia Summit or APEC that are based on consensus. When the US and China, and also Japan and China and Australia and China and India and China have a zero sum view of geopolitics, you're never gonna get consensus on, on hard issues. So multilateral uh, institutionalization, if you will, in Asia is a little bit stalled. 
Um, but I do think this has been, that, that said, a bit of a fault for the Trump administration. We are AWOL in a lot of these um, multilateral meetings. And the comedian Woody Allen said nine-tenths of success in life is just showing up. And when you're, when you're dealing with uh, Southeast Asia, you got to show up. It's, 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 it's the change and diplomacy is glacial. It's so slow. But if you don't show up, same thing, by the way, goes for the World Trade Organization, the United Nations, and other international organizations. It's glacial. It's slow. It's consensus-oriented. It's painful. But you don't show up, the Japanese, the Australians, the British, the Canadian diplomats will all tell you, when the U.S. doesn't show up in the WTO or the East Asian Summit or the Asian Regional Forum at a senior level, China expands its influence at our expense. So it's, 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 it's tough, slow, slogging work. That's why Georgetown and, you know, IWC and other places create diplomats to go out and do that hard work in their early stages of their career. Um, and you got to do it. But I'm not sure if that answered the exact question, but I think that was close to what the questioner was talking about. Thank you very much, Dr. Green, for your insightful lecture. And thank you, everyone, for raising so many in interesting and important questions. And we'll close our presentation now. Thank you. Thank you very much.